Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. You're supposed to say it back. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving. Very good. Long, long time ago, before there was such a thing as Thanksgiving Day, some people came over to America on a boat called the Mayflower. And what were those people called? Just say it. Pilgrims. By the time they got here, they didn't have a whole lot. Maybe when they left, they didn't have a whole lot. But there wasn't a lot to eat. And every once in a while, they had so little to eat. Think about this later when you have a Thanksgiving feast. They had so little to eat, they put five pieces, not cobs, pieces of corn, kernels of corn on their plate. That was dinner. Five little pieces of corn. Now, after they were here a while and they planted some things and the plants grew and they harvested them, they had plenty to eat. So they had a Thanksgiving feast. But ever since then, and to this day, some of them still put a little packet of corn with five kernels of corn in it by their plate to remember what God gave them and how blessed they are. So I thought it might be a good idea for us to have five kernels of corn today. Whatever you do, don't eat these. <laughs> this is deer corn, it'll break your teeth. But I got them so they would look like corn and so they wouldn't spoil. And my suggestion would be, I'm going to give each of you a bag with five kernels of corn in it, take it home today and at dinner, maybe you could take turns just passing it around the table and maybe there isn't time for everybody to come up with five things to be thankful for, but just pass it around and say, this is what I'm thankful to God for today. So I need a, a couple of volunteers and I, I picked them out already. Just hand these out to kids, will you? Everybody can have one. Oh, I got a few more. You just take the bag and hand them out to kids. <clears throat> and if you didn't get five, just pretend you have five, okay? Because <laughs> after you make 50 of these, they all look alike. But pass it around at the table, or I thought you could even use it in your own devotions and just hold it in your hand and say, Dear God, this is reminding me to be thankful. And do that today, but not just today. Any time would be good. Did you hand them all out? Did you have any extras? Any more extras? Did you get one? Oh, <laughs> The helpers got, everybody's got one now. This bag will be up here on the front pew for grandmas and grandpas who think that was a great idea and want to get one later. But take the bag home today and remember to give thanks to God, even if you have a whole table full of food and everything you've ever wanted. It all is because God loves you and wants you to be thankful to him. So they th say thanks to him today. You may go back to your seats. The word of God comes to us this morning from the book of the Psalms. 
this morning from the 69th Psalm, beginning at verse 30 and reading to the end through verse 36. Psalm 69, verses 30 to 36. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hoofs. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him the seas, and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. I read an article once with a title that intrigued me. It was titled... It takes a lot of water to set a Thanksgiving table. Now, I don't know if you've ever given it any thought before how much water it would take to prepare and present a feast, a Thanksgiving feast, to eight this afternoon. I know I never thought of it. But an agricultural engineer did this once and determined that a feast for eight would require 42,674 gallons of water. Now that's from production to cooking and presenting on the table and consuming. Here's how the estimate breaks down. A 20-pound turkey, 16,300 gallons of water. Stuffing, 6,004 gallons. Potatoes, 72 gallons. Scallop corn, 1,824 gallons. Green beans, 1,000 gallons. Carrots, 1,000 gallons. Salad, 680. Fresh fruit, 2,000 gallons. Bread, 300 gallons. Margarine, 2,212 gallons. Pumpkin pie, 1,240 gallons. Ice cream, 1,142 gallons. Milk for four, a thousand gallons. Wine for four, eight thousand gallons. That engineer, he must have had a lot of time on his hands, (laughs) even went so far as to determine that the water required to produce that feast for eight would fill a 30 by 50 foot swimming pool. And at a penny a gallon would add $426 and some odd cents to your dinner bill today. Now, I never thought much about thanking God for water until I was in India once, and we were told not even to rinse our toothbrush under a faucet, but always with water from a bottle. And bottled water wasn't that easy to find. I never thought much about thanking God for rain until I lived in a part of the country where the economy depended on just the right amount at just the right time. I never thought much about thanking God for Lake Michigan until I lived in a part of the country that didn't have any lakes at all. 
giving thanks to God for water. Well, this article set my mind to thinking about thanks. What is it? And for what are we supposed to be giving it? There is, of course, a lot for us to give thanks for. But thanking God for water, that unlikely thanks, set me to thinking about looking deeper. Not being less thankful for stuff and things that you can see and touch and hold and eat, but looking for the foundations. And I want you to look with me for just a couple of minutes this morning and do that by examining Psalm 69 briefly. Not exactly the most popular of all the psalms. But interestingly enough, the psalm that is the third most often quoted in the New Testament. This morning, just a minute ago, I read the happy part, the last seven verses, preceded by 29 of the most dismal verses you can find just about anywhere in Scripture. This psalm is a lament. It's a plea. It's a cry. It's a prayer of desperation. And if you've never thought of giving thanks to God for the 42,000 plus gallons of water it took to get your dinner on your plate this noon, then maybe like me you never thought about about looking for thanks in a lament. Here's how it starts. Just the first three verses. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched, my eyes fail, looking for my God. David, who is probably the author of this psalm, talks about being threatened and alienated and scorned and hated and insulted. And this goes on for 28 verses and the 29th verse, just before where I started reading this morning, the end of his pitiful lament reads this way. I am in pain and distress. May your salvation, O God, protect me. Now, a natural question to ask would be, especially since we know the conclusion of this psalm, how does thanks and praise well up in such a dismal situation? How does somebody who starts the psalm with his feet stuck in the mud in the bottom of the lake and the water up to his chin and rising, finish by saying, I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. Well, the profound answer to the question is that his circumstances drove him to his knees and there to his God. And the absence of so many things we take for granted drove him deeper into thanks. Here was a man who had lost everything but his thanks, and he hadn't lost his thanks because he still had his God. Or maybe it would be even more accurate to say he still had his thanks because he still had the conviction that God had him. 
The inspiration for David's thanks, the motivation behind it, was not his plenty, not his table laden with food, not his stuff, but the far greater wonder of God's dependability always. The assurance that God lives, that God cares, that God listens, that God loves, that God helps, that God saves. Here was a man who realized now that God didn't promise all kinds of stuff. He promised one thing. He promised us himself. And that's a promise he keeps. That's never more apparent, of course, than when everything else has disappeared. When everything is gone, God isn't. Thanks be to God. And that's when it came. That line, that, that first line I read when we started the scripture reading this morning. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. That's why we can sing today, no matter what's happening in life. Think about it today. We've done a lot of that singing already this morning. Singing is, is one of the best ways to involve our whole self in giving praise and thanks to God. Not just for crops and clothes and food and turkey, but for himself. And Thanksgiving, David celebrates, glorifies God. Remember the older versions? They said it magnifies God. Makes him look bigger. Not bigger than he is, but glorifying him for who he is and what he's done and what he promises helps us see he's even bigger than we thought he was. And there is no way to exaggerate him. Let me just address several groups within the congregation right now and start with the boys and girls, the ones who are sitting up here earlier and others like them, and say to you especially this morning, you can sing God's praise and you can glorify him and you can magnify him. Whatever it is you sing, it doesn't have to be big and fancy. In fact, I want to tell you a story about a very famous man, maybe not to you, but to anybody who's gone to seminary. His name was Karl Barth. He was brilliant, and he wrote books about God and what the Bible says about God and what it means. He wrote a whole set of books, six volumes, I think, and each one was about three inches thick. Sits about that fat on a shelf. And he went all over the world talking about God and what the Bible said about God and what you can learn about God from the Bible. And after one of his speeches, somebody raised a hand and said, Dr. Bark, could I ask you a question? What is the most astonishing truth you ever discovered in the Bible? What's the most wonderful thing you know from the Bible? And he stopped for a minute. And he scratched his head. And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's what it's all about. And that means just as much to kids, and it means something to us to hear it from kids. Let me tell you something else, boys and girls. Not all of you come up here and sit on these steps. More of you can come if you want to, by the way, but not right now. 
But I can't tell you how many people have said to me since we started doing this, oh, that is so wonderful to watch the kids run up to the front. Somebody said it just before church today and said, when my grandkids get here, they look down the order of worship, which you didn't have today, so you weren't sure you were going to get one. But they look down the order of worship and circle where it says children's message so they know when to run. And what that says when you run up here is I'm so excited to be in church and to hear from God and to learn about him that I don't care who's looking, I'm just running. That's a message that nothing is more important than God. And we hear it or see it loud and clear. Can I also say something to young people today? Because I know being a young person eons ago for me, that's the time when you want to fit in and you don't want to stick out. But don't be embarrassed about being a Christian. Don't be ashamed of belonging to him. Don't postpone making a commitment of your life to him until you're older and it seems more natural. Don't ever underestimate the power, your public profession of your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord will have on you and on your peers and on your parents and on all the rest of us sitting in this room this morning. It's not weird to be a Christian. It's not strange to want to go to church. And adults, the person who told me what fun it was to watch the kids run forward said, maybe that's a lesson to adults. I would suggest you not all try that. <laughs> I said to this person, maybe we should just walk fast. We're a little too old to run. But to be eager and, and to be thankful and to be grateful to God and think of the lesson that gives to our children and the way it encourages them to faith. Have you considered what a heritage we give them when we share our faith in behavior and gratitude and worship and the like? They'll learn from us, those kids, and not just the ones who live in our house, but the ones who belong to our church. They'll learn from us whether to take Paul seriously or not when he says, give thanks in all circumstances. Not for all, but in all circumstances. So sing and pray with thanksgiving in your hearts for your food and your homes and your clothes and your pets and your water and our natural resources and the geological wonders around us in this world. Give thanks for our freedom and our peace and our prosperity. But all of it as evidence of God's love for us that never ends. Sing about it all. Sing about God's name. Glorify God's name. Magnify him. Help us see that he's even bigger than we dreamed. And then something wonderful begins to happen. As David put it in this psalm, the poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. True thanks, David says, touches people. It touches people in their souls. Our songs of thanks and praise, not just today, certainly today, but always, 
can reach into someone else's life, someone whose feet may be stuck in the mud on the bottom of the lake, and his chin is, the water is up to his chin and rising. Thanks becomes a form of ministry. Maybe not intentionally, but very really. I knew somebody once, this was years ago, who was at that time already an elderly person. He had had a debilitating stroke. Uh, he lived in a nursing home. He was confined to a wheelchair, but he got to church as often as he possibly could. He couldn't get out of the wheelchair. He couldn't walk. He couldn't make his hands do what he wanted them to anymore. It was very difficult even to shake hands with him. His conversation was somewhat garbled. It was hard to understand what he was saying. But everybody who knew him and saw him knew he was grateful and full of thanks and full of praise. And his thanks and praise still touches me. So I say to all of us this morning, whatever our age, whatever our educational level, whatever our financial status, whatever our circumstances right now, glorify God, magnify God, help all of us see how big he is, and those who worship God will be encouraged. And then something else happens. It moves beyond touching those we know to reaching past them, outside the borders of our bodies, outside the walls of this room, all the way into the world around us. Heaven and earth and seas join in the praise. John Calvin once said, David encourages creation to praise and thank God to help us overcome our inhibitions and our timidity and our fear of expressing ourselves. And then he says, but what above all kindled this ardor in the heart of David was his concern for his preservation of the church. That's what Zion is mentioned in the last part of what I read this morning. Not just me, not just us in this congregation, but all the people of God everywhere. The church now and always engages in praise and the last words of the psalm are then appropriate, and those who love his name will dwell there. We've got a lot to sing about today, and we've sung about a lot of it already. But there's one hymn that more than any other seems tailor-made for a service of thanksgiving. One hymn that it seems it would be almost inappropriate for Christians to get together and give thanks and not sing. It was written by Martin Rinkart. Martin Rinkart was a Lutheran pastor in Eilenburg, Saxony. And he was there from 1586 to 1649. And during that time, the horrible 30 years war was fought. And refugees flooded into his town from all around and then that town was besieged, and all the people in it faced fear and death and famine and plague. 800 homes were destroyed by the enemy in that town, and Rinkhart sometimes had as many as 40 or 50 funerals a day. But he wrote a song, a hymn, during that time, 
which he wrote so his family could sing it around the table for family devotions, and which now is sung around the world by his fellow believers. Better than just about any other hymn, certainly than any other Thanksgiving hymn, Martin Rinkert's Thanksgiving hymn sums up the amazing truth of Psalm 69. If David could sing while he was up to his chin in danger, if David could sing his thanks then, if Martin Rinkert could sing his thanks when he was up to his neck in death, then surely we can too. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things has done in whom his world rejoices.